This is Reaganism, a podcast dedicated to exploring where the Reagan movement lives today. I'm Roger Zak. I'm your host, director of the Ronald Reagan Institute in Washington, D.C. On this episode of Reaganism, Roger sits down with Walter Russell Mead, Revenel B. Curry III, Distinguished Fellow in Strategy and Statemanship at Hudson Institute, and the Global View columnist at The Wall Street Journal. Roger and Walter discuss his new book, The United States, Israel, and the Fate of the Jewish People. Walter Russell Mead, welcome back to Reaganism. It's great to be here. Now you, of course, the Ravenel B. Curry III, Distinguished Fellow in Strategy and Statemanship at the Hudson Institute and the Global View columnist at the Wall Street Journal. But you're here today because you're the author of the new book, The Ark of a Covenant, the United States, Israel, and the Fate of the Jewish People, what is a comprehensive treatment of the U.S.-Israel relationship. Congratulations on this uh, remarkable accomplishment. Well, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> there's there's blood on every page, although I'm not sure it shows in the final edition. <laughs> well, definitely you see the the comprehensive uh, nature of this work, uh, and and clearly the the amount of time you spent researching and collecting uh, to to publish this. Walter, why did you choose to go so deep on a, a by? Bilateral relationship, clearly important in, in U.S. foreign policy, but perhaps not the most important uh, bilateral relationship. You know, you could you would think the U.K., Australia, you know, uh, Canada, perhaps. What brought you to the U.S.-Israel relationship, Walter? Well, you know, actually, the first thing was in um, and I didn't think it was going to be this big of a book or this, diff, you know, complex and difficult a thing when I started. Um you know, it's like you. no one would ever start a war if they had any idea just how complicated it was going to be. And no one would ever really start a book, I think, if they really knew what they were getting into. But at the beginning, I, what really concerned me was the way that people, not just people here with the sort of, quote, Israel lobby thesis and so on, but people around the world, even quite sophisticated people, you know, believe that the reason America has the policies toward Israel that it does is because, quote, the Jews, unquote, run America. I mean, that simple. And I've had, you know, foreign ambassadors say this to me. I've had renowned scholars say this to me. Um, and it's, uh, you know, I find myself saying, well, you know, which Jews, I, you know, like, my friend Paul Wolfowitz and my friend George Soros have very different points of view. You know, what exactly do you mean? But it's it stays. And so I thought it would be worth really trying to deconstruct that. But then as I get into it, and, you know, it certainly is deconstructible, uh, what I then found is that you, know, which, you haven't really done it if you don't show, okay, if it isn't the Jews, why do we have the policies that we do. And then you then as I get into it, it was people actually don't understand American Israel. Everybody thinks they understand America's policies toward Israel, but very few people, even experts, really do. And so you get into this kind of work of historical excavation, and then you start discovering American attitudes to Israel are connected with so many other American attitudes. I almost ended up having to write a full-scale history of American foreign policy and history of American domestic ideology just to make the point. And while that was incredibly sort of frustrating and time consuming, it seemed like it was worth it 
And it also, in some, in an odd way, it validates the original choice to make this relationship a lens through which to look at a whole range of phenomena. Super interesting. Deconstructing the trope. I mean, the yeah. first section of the book, a couple early chapters, you do it in a uh, such a methodical fashion. Your language uh, is is scholarly and yet readable, but also reasonable, uh, addressing points of view that are generally dismissed. So that's a pro-Israel point of view, or you know, that's an anti-Israel, anti-Jewish point of view, and and you it seems you're so disciplined to take it seriously and dismiss it. Uh, because it, it, of course, is just almost a convenient way to try to explain things, but obviously lacking in yeah. in actually substance and 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 being the reason. Was that difficult? And 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 now when you go back and you know you travel the world as as you explain world affairs to Americans through the Wall Street Journal and other publications, do you think? Uh, those people you speak with will, will, will have a more sophisticated, deeper uh, mindset here. Well, a lot of this is just, you know, like Sisyphus, you roll the stone uphill and it rolls back down. I mean, honestly, anti-Semitism has never fr fully been defeated by sort of logical refutation because it's not a logical phenomenon. Uh, nevertheless, you, you know, one really does need to do it. And part of what I was trying to do here was in a country that's just obsessed by cancel culture like ours, um, I wanted to, to show people that even on one of the most contentious subjects in American politics, you can actually do this in a way that, yes, you have a point of view and, yes, you express it, but you can actually get to where you have a conversation. One of the things I'm very happy about is some leading uh, is Muslim Americans actually read the manuscript, commented on the manuscript, and blurbed the manuscript in some cases. So I've tried to I've tried to make this a model of how do how do you conduct a public controversy? So I don't personalize the issue when somebody has an idea that I don't agree with, whether it's on the far right or far left, I don't sort of start throwing ad hominems at a person. I look at, do my best anyway to look at the arguments and show why this doesn't make sense. Now, you, of course, make an argument that the American approach and support of Zionism, the idea of having a Jewish state, uh, kind of precedes you know, what President Truman goes back all the way to our founders and it's a mix of of, of kind of elements of, of American identity. In fact, in many ways, uh, and you have this line, when Americans look at Israel, they, they, they look at themselves. Take a minute or two uh, just to explain that to our listeners and viewers, kind of how Israel in many ways uh, expresses American views of themselves and the complexity of our society. Well, it's really does start. If you think about early 19th century, when American identity is taking shape, American ideology is taking shape. The Americans at the time, we was talking about basically the, the predominantly white Protestant Americans who were running things and writing the books and so on. They look at history and they see, boy, the ancient world was fantastic. The ancient Hebrews, 
beautiful Palestine, ancient Greeks. Greece was a paradise. They had democracy, ancient Rome, the Republic, the virtues, Italy, this wonderful place. Look at them all now. Total disasters. Right. Uh, Mark Twain went to Palestine and said it was like the only thing he'd ever seen that reminded him of Arizona. Um, and uh, the, you know, so what happened? And the, their sort of idea was that, well, we had all this great stuff. And then came the dark ages, the corruption of the church, all these things. Then the Renaissance. We recover the learning of the ancient world. Then the Reformation, we recover the religious principles of a true unpolluted Christianity as they saw it. Then the, the glorious revolution in England where we recover the principles of liberty. And the American Revolution where we defend and extend them. Right? This is a big thing and it's bigger than us. It's bigger than the American people. Well, what other people bore a message to the whole world that was bigger than they were, the Jewish people. And so there's a kind of a, a sense of parallel mission, which is accentuated by the fact that for the early American founders, the Jewish scriptures were one of their main sources of reference and, and understanding. That's one of the biggest differences between the American founders and every other political community in the modern West is their deep, deep steeping in Hebrew scripture. So then as you begin to look forward, the Americans kind of look at the Greeks and the Romans and the, and the Hebrews, the Jews in the 19th century, and they say, gosh, if these people would just do like Americans, farm, live under a democracy, you know, then like their, their misery would be reversed. So when the Greeks rise up against the Ottoman Turks, the Americans actually, Americans go over there to fight in right. the Greek War of Independence. The huge support for the Italian revolution against the Pope for the Risorgimento, they wanted to make Garibaldi a general in the Union Army during the Civil War. Um, probably the last time an Italian general has been sought out as a commander for American <laughs> forces, I don't know. Uh, but anyway, this great enthusiasm and Americans thought that if the Jews would only do the right thing, go back to Israel and start farming and live under democracy, then even the Jews, this people that's scattered, that's widely considered to be weak and, and vulnerable and is generally kind of looked down on, they would begin to re-ennoble themselves. And the, the, the glories of the ancient Hebrews would return. So when it starts, and, and so the Americans are into this before there's a Jewish Zionist movement. Before Herzl wrote Der Judenstadt, J.P. Morgan and John D. Rockefeller had asked President Benjamin Harrison to work towards setting up a Jewish state in Palestine. The American establishment was Zionist before the Jews. Amazing. And and it, and this is at a time, and it goes to some of the canards that you dismissed through all the evidence, is that there weren't Jews. <laughs> this is a, a very, very small Jewish population living in the right. United States at the time this occurs. And, and furthermore, you know, and the Jews were mostly anti-Zionist in the United States. What <laughs> Jews there were hated the idea of Zionism. The New York Times was the Zionist newspaper when it was owned by Christians. When it was bought by a Jewish publisher, it became anti-Zionist. 
So the one most, of the great examples in your work of how it turns the assumptions on 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 every, you know on its head. The notion that somehow that there is this you know organized effort. It just it's <laughs> the experience almost shows the exact opposite. That's right. It's really not until World War II that the American Jewish establishment sort of embraces Zionism. And if you think about it, the years in which the American Jewish community was most united behind Israel, say 1941 to the 1970s, those were actually the times when U.S. support for Israel was lower. Um, you know, that there's no correlation between Jewish support for Israel and America's Israel policy. I, I want to go into one example, which I think you do just a, a great job of explaining. And the research is so rich that you that, you know, the common narratives on both sides just just fail to hold. Um but you know, the point I hear you making is that the, the period where the Jewish community was organized in terms of supporting Israel was a was kind of a low uh, Mark, in terms of U.S. government support for yeah. Zionism or Israel. The one I want you to focus on uh, and unpack for us is the narratives in terms of what happened uh, when Truman and, and, yeah. and the Truman administration recognized uh, the, the new state of Israel versus what actually happened. And this, you know, it starts with this uh, figure, Eddie Jacobson, of course, the famed haberdasher colleague of uh, of Truman prior to him entering politics and the, the, the narrative versus the reality. How about you take a couple minutes and just give us that as an example of where uh, the, the facts and the history uh, tell something entirely different than what most people assume. Well, that is a great story. And to me, it is a great example of how sort of pro-Zionist and anti-Zionist narrative sort of in a way, converge on a single set of false facts. Uh, and it's, you know, it's it's a very common story I've learned in the American Jewish community, this idea that, oh, it's the spring of 1948. The fate of Israel hangs in the balance. And Harry Truman has refused to see any American Jewish leaders. Even Chaim Weizmann, the great Zionist leader, has come to America. Truman is refusing to see him. What the fate of Israel, what will happen? And little Eddie Jacobson, a little Jew from Midwestern state, knows him, comes into the Oval Office like Queen Esther in the Bible. <laughs> and goes to the moody Gentile ruler, says, save my people. <laughs> and Harry Truman listens to Eddie Jacobson, sees Chaim Weitzman, and Israel is saved. That's sort of, you know, that's the Zion. That is a story at every Jewish day camp across the country, you know, every year, <laughs> yes. going back decades. Right. It's the equivalent of George Washington and the cherry tree, basically. <laughs> <laughs> and the thing is, that's also a story that they tell on the anti-Zionist side of how the relentless Jewish lobbying forces Truman to override the State Department, override George Marshall, and kowtow to the Jewish lobby. And there's only one tiny little problem with this beautiful story. I mean, it did happen in the sense that Jacobson did go in, he did see Truman, and Truman really did say, all right, you, you bald-headed son of a bitch, you win, I'll see him. And he saw Weizmann. But after that, American policy did not change. Truman did not change. The la Right up until the minute 
Israel declared independence. The Americans were lobbying the Israelis with everything they had to persuade them to postpone the Declaration of Independence to allow the UN to continue to 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 administer British Palestine in order to find some compromise with the Arabs. That and the last thing that the Yeshuv leadership did before they declared independence for the Jewish state was they voted to reject Harry Truman's plea. But beyond that, you know, the big issue in, in that war, as in all wars, think of the Ukraine war today, was weapons. And it was almost exactly 75 years ago today that the the fighting begins to break out in British Palestine following the UN vote. And the State Department slaps an arms embargo on the whole region. Nobody can buy American weapons. Now, that had the effect of favoring the Arabs because the British were arming the Arabs. And so it was a one-sided embargo. And in fact, the um, you know many at the time compared it to the uh, embargo against Republican Spain, which de facto helped Franco, who was getting armed by the Germans and the Italians. So, and and Truman never budges on the arms embargo, and, it, and, it's, was, the, and it's the Soviets, right? I mean, you get, I guess that's where you're yeah. headed, right? Well, that's it. That that. Um, you know, the bunch of uh, representatives of the Jewish community in Palestine are sitting around in Paris. Where are we going to get some arms? What are we going to do? And this sort of mysterious Romanian comes in, Romanian Jew says, oh, weapons, that's not a problem. And he passes out these brochures of weapons, flies them to Prague, which, you know, is increasingly under Soviet control. And it turns out that there are these surplus weapons that were made by the Skoda arms factory originally for the Wehrmacht. And that obviously after May 8th, the the German army stops taking delivery. They have a surplus of weapons. And and basically Stalin is allowing the Czech communists to sell these weapons to the Israelis for hard currency, which will help the Czech communists take power in the Czech Republic which is totally contrary to American policy, totally in secret. Americans have no idea as far as we can tell. Not even the CIA knows this is happening. But the knowledge that they've all, and it's the Soviet weapons that start turning the tide. It's those weapons that allow the Jews in Palestine to begin the operation to relieve the siege of Jerusalem, which was their biggest military problem and the realization that they have this continual flow of weapons from with backing personal backing of stalin is what gives the the israelis the confidence to declare independence against american advice so this beautiful eddie jacobson story is completely isolated from any real understanding of the actual geopolitical events that are driving. What, what, you, demonst- what you demonstrate is the, the, the consequential development that really turned the United States into recognizing Israel and working with Israel was less A.D. Jacobson. There was a small piece contribution, but the bigger contribution was Stalin and geopolitics, great power politics in the Middle East, and the possibility that, you know, the Soviets would increase their leverage in the region. And as a result, the United States 
needed to adjust, right? I mean, that's that's what ultimately I think Truman was responding to and Marshall was surprised by. Well, it was, well, again, that, that once Israel was independent, I mean, you know, Truman's whole thing was, his problem was the Democratic Party liberals led by people like Eleanor Roosevelt, who believed that instead of having an evil pro-British policy for the cold, a cold war, a terrible idea, cold war, why we'll just frighten poor Stalin if we start organizing against him. We need to reassure him that he can trust us and then work beautifully together in the UN. Uh, that was the kind of liberal line. And Truman needed their support to be renominated. Eleanor Roosevelt had a lot more to do with Truman's policy on Israel than the entire American Jewish community. Mm -hmm. If any American of that time needs a statue in Israel, it's probably Eleanor Roosevelt. <laughs> um, and but again, it was a kind of a misunderstanding, a woolly misunderstanding on her part. But Truman is happy. Truman basically conforms his Palestine policy, including the recognition to demonstrate to Democratic liberals that he is try trying to work with the United Nations and not getting sucked into the British plans to protect their empire. It's really a it's a great story. I can't tell you how much fun it was to to work on piecing it together. Fascinating. Let's jump decades forward, because one of the. Themes uh, repeatedly is how. You know, you have people who come in pro-Israel, that's their outlook, but that doesn't necessarily translate into policies or positions that the pro-Israel community wants or the state of Israel, the government, the government of Israel, um, you know, has other interests in other areas uh, that that don't align with the pro-Israel predisposition of, of an administration. Uh, I'm thinking here of, of, of President Reagan. So here at, at the Reagan Institute, you know, looking at those those years of, with, with, with unique interest, Reagan, as you write, came in, friend of Israel, um, focus on Sharansky and Refusniks was a key piece of the dynamic, the diplomacy, uh, the linkage, uh, so-called linkage uh, between the United States and Soviet Union. Yet he had crises on his hands that put him at odds with Israeli government right. with the AWOC sale. Give us your take on on Reagan and Israel and and surprisingly, uh, the the complications in, get, in making that relationship work with Menachem Begin as prime minister, the secretary of defense in in Casper uh, Weinberger and, and Jonathan Parlard. I mean, there's all these elements that uh, create friction um, in, between the administration, Reagan administration, and Israel. Well, you know, to begin with, the United States and Israel are actually different countries. And while I think our our strategic interests are broadly aligned. There are all kinds of places where we have big differences with Israel. And, you know, those come up in every administration. And amazingly, American presidents sort of start to think, well, my job is to do what I think is best for the American interests. Just <laughs> as Israeli prime ministers are saying, my job is to do what's best for Israel's interests. That's kind of how the game is played. Uh, and, you know, I think it was complicated in Reagan's terms, in part by um, his very poor relationship with Sharon, mm. that um, Reagan was deeply impressed with the massacres, uh, you know, that took place in Beirut. And personally, 
in a way that many of his advisors tried to talk him out of. But personally, he really did put responsibility on that for some individuals on the Israeli side. So that, leading the Lebanon war and, you know, and and yeah. and Reagan is troubled and, and concerned about the everyone being the general in charge and, and being. right. The, the Israelis basically allow the Falange, the Lebanese uh, militia to massacre um substantial number of Palestinians. And this, um, you know, historians are fighting about it and so on, but that's that was Reagan's view. Uh, so, so that also tended to erode his trust a bit. But the AWACS thing is, to me, a very different one, which is that um, I, and I wrote about this uh, in mostly in terms of the Nixon administration, but it certainly continues into the Reagan era, the whole question of American aid, military aid to Israel, and arms sales to the Arabs and the Israelis. This is one of the, the elements of American policy. I think it is most consistently misunderstood, again, by people on both sides of, of these issues. And really what happens is, um, you know, in 1970, the U.S. isn't selling that many arms uh, in the Middle East. But, you know, where we are is mostly to the Shah of Iran, who is our biggest ally and recipient of the greatest amount of aid. In the 70s, as the oil price shoots up with OPEC, um, the U.S. feels an urgent need to sell weapons to the Arabs because the Arabs First of all, they have a lot of money. We're paying them all this money for oil. We need to claw some of this back by selling them stuff to keep the dollar from collapsing and keep the financial system healthy. At the same time, we want the Arab countries to be strong enough so the Soviets or others won't be tempted by this wealth to attack them. And then finally, we figure if we're giving them their arms, um, they're going to be dependent on us because they'll need the parts, they'll need the training and stuff. So it'll deepen our relationships at a time we really need that. It's a, it's the right idea uh, from a national security point of view, very solid, but it was politically toxic because and, and it was strategically problematic, politically toxic because everybody hated the Arabs in the 1970s. They were the bandits, the the monopolists, the people taking our money by jacking, ruthlessly jacking up the price and gloating about it. And people just hated them. So, you know, nobody, why are we going to send them all of these weapons? But the other problem is that here's Israel sitting among all these Arab countries. And if Israel perceives that the Arabs are getting weapons that are strong enough to attack it, the Israelis aren't just going to sit there and let that happen. They're actually going to go destroy those weapons before there's a threat big enough to, to threaten them. So our policy of trying to stabilize the Middle East by selling arms to the Arabs isn't going to work if it provokes a war between Israel and the Arabs. Right. So big problem. And the answer that, that emerges from all kinds of negotiations and the AWACS sale is sort of part of this process is that um, uh, we will make sure the Israelis stay safe. We now call it the qualitative edge that Israel will always be yeah, right. will always have like, you know, a step above the capacity of its Arab neighbors. However, then the Israelis pointed out, and they're right, 
that as Golda Meir put it, Moses led the children of Israel through the Middle East for 40 years to the only place where there wasn't any oil. And so, you know, basically the Americans are starting an arms race by selling all this oil to the Arabs. And now we expect the Israelis to pay the same amount as Saudi Arabia to keep strategic parity insane, unworkable. And so American military aid is essentially enabling the Israelis to maintain peer relations with these suddenly rich oil shakedoms. Well, that's the basic framework. And it, you know, it's it's remarkably stable in the sense that, you know, it's still it's not a bad description of a lot of things yeah. that are going on. Although as Israel has become richer, I think there's much more talk about does it really need I'll, the I'll, aid? I'll, that's where I want to move to next in terms of the present day considerations and 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 the bilateral relationship and particularly uh, security assistance um, as you have the Netanyahu government coming in and and how right. it shake out. You know, one of the uh, ironies that you point out is the greatest supporters of Israel in its early years were the left. Yeah. Um, it's socialist roots, the kibbutzim, right? And then now it's become the darling of the right. And of course, the anti-Israel community um, resides uh, on the left. Um, yeah, there are a few on the right. No doubt. No doubt. That's true, as 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 you highlight. Um, but but let's let's move out of the Reagan years and 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 take it to where we are today, because whether it's Iran policy um, or broader um, uh, geopolitics, Israel, you know, plays into it, but it's not quite clear how, how, how it's going to, how it's going to land, particularly when you have a democratic president, uh, whether it was president Obama or now president Biden and Eli could uh, right of center uh, party with, with Netanyahu. So uh, Walter, we are about to get this Netanyahu government. You have president Biden, uh, in office, you have elements almost seem to me, you know, kind of just waiting for the opportunity to call out this new government in Israel and make an argument against the bilateral, uh, uh, often mostly bipartisan support the United States gives Israel. Well, how, how do you see it shaken out after this, you know, study of, 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 of Israel and the, of the Ark of the Covenant? Yeah, well, I mean, I think one thing that we all need to keep in mind wherever we're wherever we stand politically is that this there, there's a widespread idea out there that Israel is really, you know, dependent on the American alliance for survival. Uh, but one thing that is utterly clear from this book and from the historical record is that Israel, as I say in the book, Israel did not become great because it had an American alliance. It gained an American alliance after it had grown great. It was after Israel wins the 67 war, after Israel has nuclear weapons, that the U.S. says, wait a minute, maybe we should be working with these people. Um, and that's that's a very profound thing, because for one thing, it means that Israel knows that while it doesn't want to lose the American alliance, while the American alliance is very valuable, if Israel walked away from the United States now, it would be in a much better position than it was in the 40s and 50s. Mm -hmm. You know, China, India, Russia, they'd be standing in line 
to have a partnership with Israel and have access to Israel's tech capabilities, all kinds of other things. Even the Arabs would be standing in that line. All right. So the idea that somehow an American president can pressure the Israeli government into doing a lot of things it doesn't want to do on matters that it considers essential is a fundamental misreading of the reality of the situation. Now, I actually think that President Biden and the people around him understand this. Um, and I think there are a lot of people out there in the Democratic Party, and for that matter, in the Republican Party, who don't have a clue, because this is an issue a lot of people think they understand but don't understand. And um, so that's going to limit, I think, the amount of pressure that the administration feels it can bear. I think actually probably of all the American presidents who had an opportunity to get a Palestinian state, President Obama was actually the one who had the most golden opportunity and threw it away basically because he didn't think it was worth it. Um, and that is that if if a president of the United States basically had said to Bibi, look, in you know, 10 years ago, look, you have a problem with Iran. I need some help with the Palestinians. You know, I'll work with you to solve your Iran problem. I think an Israeli prime minister could have sold that in Israel as, look, it's a sacrifice we don't want to make. It's a compromise we don't want to make. But Iran is a big thing, and we need to deal with it, and this is the way. You could have done it. But here's the thing. It was not worth it to President Obama. You know, again, American national interest, the Palestinians don't rank that high. And, and President um, Obama uh, uh, clearly had a... a an approach to Middle East where the JCPOA, the agreement with Iran, uh, from his worldview, uh, was more useful. Yeah, it was more useful, right? It was what met his view of what the national interest, right? Of course. So and and right and so here's and, and it's worth noting again in terms of the Jewish lobby, the Israel lobby, President Obama is fighting with Bibi almost every day of his time in office, right? And yet he remained the probably the single most popular post-war president. Uh, in the American Jewish community. Only blacks voted for, for Obama at a higher percentage than Jews did in 2008. And you point that out in the book. I mean, it's, it's, if everybody thinks that the Jewish community is, is, is only interested in a pro-Israel, pro-Israeli government set of policies, then it doesn't explain the way the American Jewish community votes, right? Some, yeah, sometimes I actually say to my European friends, Listen, if the American Jewish community really did run the country, you would actually like our Israel policy a lot more than you do now. <laughs> the Democratic Socialists would, would, would embrace it. it right. would be well, you know, and actually it's interesting. It is fun to think back in the 50s talking about Israel as a left wing cause. Then the Democratic Socialists of America used to point to Israel as the poster child for socialism. Because economically, Israel was far to the left of any of the European social democracies, the labor unions, nationalization of key industries. It was far more socialist than Germany or France or England. And so socialists in America would say, you say socialist can't, countries can't be democratic. Look at Israel. Right. You say socialist democratic. Socialism ruins the economy. Well, Israel isn't rich, but they're absorbing all this these immigrants and they're providing for defense. Shut up. 
Israel proves that socialism works. And that was a huge talking point. After 1977, when Israel sort of moves from socialism to Thatcherism, that's, that is a part of the left's disenchantment with Israel. But, you know, picking up that thread, Walter, as you know, there's a, you have the conservative nationalist movement picking up steam here in intellectual circles, policy circles. Many of those people are, are, are Likudniks and people who uh, are almost uh, supporters and perhaps come from the Israeli right uh, as yeah. well. So there's, there's this kind of thread on both ends. Um, right. Where, where you yeah, I think it is. It's worth noting that it's in that sort of conservative nationalist segment of American opinion, which I think is rather different today from in Reagan's era. That's where you find some of the most anti-Israel sentiment because of the concern that basically because there are a lot of people in that movement who who are close to isolationist. I don't want to say isolationist because they say they're not isolationists. Okay, fine. You know, Caesar is an honorable, Brutus is an honorable man. But um, uh, so uh, and, and you often find isolationism and anti-Zionism and anti-Semitism linked in some way. So we should not so it's, it's a weird paradox in some ways that some of the strongest forces in this movement are coming out of Israel, but also some of the strongest opposition is coming out of that same quadrant. Which reinforces the complexity of all of this, Walter, right? And, and, and no yeah. doubt the restrainers and the neo-isolationists, you know, they, there are camps there that just want a uh, uh, foreign policy. Let's just build the walls really high and, and, and not be involved in anything outside of those walls. I mean, that's... That, that, yeah. That's what is what you're getting. Um, I want to come back to the Biden piece. And then you do have great treatment at the end of your book of Trump, which we, we should hit on as well. The pre President Trump and his administration's approach to Israel. But I get your point that you don't anticipate the Biden administration or the Biden administration, I should say, understands the limits of their ability to push Israel to do things that Israel views as against its national interest. Take that point. Some sophisticated actors, President Biden's been dealing with Israel for a very long time. His team are sophisticated on that front. But there's a political push on the left right. to attack this issue set. And that is an element of the Democratic Party, the pro progressives, that will absolutely want to challenge a Netanyahu government, not to allow anticipated minister like Ben Gavir to... Uh, come to the United States or if he comes to the United States, not to have, not to be treated as a diplomat and, and be isolated. How do you see that piece playing out and, and how the Biden administration manages the political slice? Well, actually, I think it's a huge, in a sense, opportunity for the Biden administration, because in the great scheme of things, it really doesn't matter um, whether or not a particular Israeli minister is invited to the United States or receives good treatment. Netanyahu is sophisticated enough. Both sides are sophisticated enough to like have spats that don't wreck everything. Um, and so, in fact, for Biden, the opportunity to make all the progressives go, oh, you wonderful president, look at the courage. We only wish you would do more. Right. right. Well, in fact, it's just a meaningless populist gesture. This is this is what presidents love and need all the time is a chance to do symbolic things that make their base swell with joy. All right. And that's one of the things that 
every president has used Israel policy for because so many Americans pay attention to it and care about it without necessarily knowing a lot about it. All right. It's just if you need to throw some chum in the water. It's a great way to do it. All right. So I'll feed them a little red meat, but I'm not going to allow the structure to, you know, right. Get out of and then again, if if Biden's got the left really happy, but now like the 2024 is coming, see, I need to tack back to the center. He can do something that, you know, the Israelis like. And then all these other people in America say, oh, thank goodness, Biden is showing his true moderation. Right, right. See, it's it's. It's it's a right. It's a no lose opportunity. Last one on this, but kind of same theme, different variation on the right side. You spend you know significant time, give good treatment to President Trump, and the argument you make across all the things he did vis-a-vis Israel is this is not a person who is passionately Zionist or pro-Israel per se, although he's always been there. But he made these moves primarily to appeal to his base that yeah. for political reasons. And that's how your book in so many ways is a great way to learn about American domestic politics as much as it's about to learn opportunity to learn about Israeli U.S. relationship that Trump used the Israel suite of policies and policy choices to advance his political standing with the conservative base. Give us a couple examples and, and make that make that argument for us. I think the key one and and this is, you know, it, it, it's classic and it's beautiful. Trump's core political message is that the emperor has no clothes and I'm the only one with the vision and the courage to say so. The American political establishment, stark naked. The Republican policy establishment, stark naked. OK, I see it. I, and unlike them all, I'll tell you this. And the question of putting the, where to put the U.S. embassy in Israel was tailor made, so to speak, for the Trump approach, which is, you know, in, in 1992, Bill Clinton runs against George H.W. Bush. It's unconscionable that the American embassy is in Tel Aviv, while Jerusalem is the capital of Israel. And Clinton gets in in office, and amazingly, the the embassy stays in Tel Aviv in spite of these eloquent speeches. And but Congress, you know, then passes a law which Clinton says the, the embassy must go to Jerusalem. But there's a little thing. Of course, the president determines that in the national security we shouldn't do it. He can sign a waiver. So every six months, Clinton signs a waiver. The embassy stays unmoved. Then in 2000, Bush, George W. Bush, gets revenge by running against the Gore, the Clinton-Gore administration for its failure to move the embassy in defiance of law. And then Bush gets in, and this will shock you, I know, but the embassy stays in Tel Aviv for another eight years. All right? And candidate Obama running for office tells AIPAC, Undivided Jerusalem is the capital of the Jewish state. <laughs> Gets into office, and again, shockingly, nothing happens. Trump sees this, promises during the campaign to move the embassy to Jerusalem, and then shocks everyone in Washington by actually taking steps to do that, at which point 
the entire American Middle East establishment rises with one voice and says, this is a disaster. If you do this, the entire Middle East will go in flames. America will have no allies. This will be the end of the world. Right. <laughs> OK. And Trump moves the embassy and nothing happens. So for Trump, this is perfection. Chef's kiss. The establishment lies to you. They have contempt for you. They don't mean anything they say. You can tell they're lying because their lips are moving. All right. And furthermore, they're stupid. They're dishonest. They're incompetent. That is the entirety of the Trump message. And so the fact that Israel is kind of a high visibility piece of foreign policy and Jerusalem is a is a name at which people's ears prick up all over the country. He knows they'll see it. So this was a gift to Trump and he milked it beautifully. And if everything in administration, his administration worked this way, he'd probably still be president yeah, and we'd be amending the Constitution for his third term. But um, it didn't. You know, this this it didn't all work out so smoothly for him. We're with Walter Russell Mead, author of The Ark of a Covenant, a fantastic book that explains the United States, Israel and the fate of the Jewish people. One more question on the book and then we'll talk about a recent column in the Wall Street Journal, which I'd love to spend our last few minutes uh, discussing. You have a great line that in the book saying that Israel is a speck on the map of the world, but nonetheless, it occupies a continent in the American mind. Do you see that continuing with the America of today? I mean, you do a great job explaining why that was the case you know, uh, in the 19th century and through the 20th century, as we, here we are, you know, two decades into the 21st century. Um, do you see that continuing? Is it a continent or is it going to go back to be a, a smaller mass of land? No, I think it's probably going to remain continental. For one thing, it's not just continental here. It's continental in a lot of places. If you go to Nigeria, people will argue ferociously about Israel and Israel policy and it becomes a kind of a football between the Christian, mostly Christian South and the mostly Muslim North. If you go to Northern Ireland, I've seen, you know, over the Republican neighborhoods, you'll see the Palestinian flag flying and over the pro-British UK unionist neighborhoods, you'll see the, the star of David. This is a conflict that has a symbolic power not just in the U.S., but all over the world. And I think actually both the Israelis and the Palestinians would be happy if some of that went away, you know, uh, but there it is. And in the U.S. today, you know, if you want if you want to say to people, I'm a red blooded American, I believe in American values and the things that made America great. And I love Israel. That all makes sense. But if you want to say America is a racist project and a settler state and our alliance with apartheid Israel is just an example of how evil we are, you see, it still works. Your your stand on Israel is a way of communicating who you are and what you believe to people. All of this independent of anything that might or might not be going on on the ground in Israel. But it's so it, it, it seems to me that the the anti-Israel people have as much investment in this. And again, you, you go to Europe, it's the same thing, the sort of, 
you know, if you're on the moderate left, you say, well, I support Israel's right to exist, but the settlements are really a problem. And if you're on the far left, you say it's a settler state, it should all go. You know, it's it's a way of signaling your identity and your overall political orientation everywhere you go. And I think that's it's almost like the English of politics in a way, the universal language. Hmm. Um, and I think it's I think it's going to be durable in that way. Fascinating uh, insight. Walter Russell, me talking the Middle East, talking the bilateral relationship and history relationship between the United States and Israel. Um, you had a piece recently about Ukraine um, mm-hmm. in your uh, Global View column in the Wall Street Journal. And in it, you seem to be arguing, you don't seem to be, you are arguing that it's time we have to start thinking about what peace may look like mm-hmm. uh, in Ukraine. And there are those who want to support Ukraine uh, and have been hesitant to talk peace because of fear that that might be inviting uh, an, a, an, a peace agreement that would undermine Ukrainian sovereignty, uh, freedom for Ukrainians, and, and their effort. Uh, you make, I think, a really strong argument that the two uh, don't have to conflict. At least that's the way I read it. But talk about, for a minute, as we, as we shift from um, one conflict that seems to have no end in sight, that is the Palestinian-Israeli conflict, to one that very well could become a frozen conflict, uh, and that is between Russia and Ukraine. Walter, why is it important that even if you want to see Ukraine succeed in rolling back Russian aggression, we need to be thinking about what peace may look like? Well, you know, in the column, I, I quote something people used to tell me in Poland after the collapse of communism. And I would ask, you know, how long is it going to take for Poland to emerge as a you know, strong democratic country? And the answer you would you would often hear back is, well, it's easier to, to turn an aquarium into fish soup than it is to turn fish soup back into an aquarium. <laughs> and, you know, and we like to think of peace as just this, you know, easy thing. If nothing is disturbing you, you'll have peace. But actually building peace is hard. And it involves a lot of difficult questions like boundaries between Russia and Ukraine, nature of the peace, Ukraine's future place in world security architecture, et cetera, et cetera. Now, in World War II, from, you know, even actually before we entered World War II, Roosevelt is already thinking about what comes after. And in fact, he and Churchill signed the Atlantic Charter before the United States goes to war. So I don't think anybody would say Franklin Roosevelt wasn't committed to winning World War II, but he thought long and hard about what do you try to do? And and basically most of the big decisions, whether it's the UN or the IMF or the, you know, these other things, they're actually taken while the fighting is still going on. So, you know, fortunately, the Ukraine war is not as big a war as World War II. Two, but it remains the case. I think that that if we're going to, if if we're going to have a peace that lasts and that works, we have to start. You, you can't just wait until you get a call and you know Putin says, "Okay, I'm ready to talk peace now." And then you think, "Well, what do we mean by peace, and what do we want?" And again, 
America has a set of real interests that we want dealt with in this. And I, I mentioned them in the, the piece. You know, one of them is we do want it to be clear from what happens that that wars of conflict and aggression don't gain for you. So, you know, there's a kind of a red line there in terms of people who might be worried, where do you stand on Ukraine? But also, we don't want a frozen conflict. Right. A frozen conflict, we, you know, we don't want sanctions. We want, you know, we don't want a, a, a situation where Russia could start another war anytime it felt like it. And where Russia is cut off from the West economically, which means being driven closer into China's arms. And while some people in Eastern Europe may think it would be great if Russia disappeared, from an American national security point of view, we want there to be a government that controls what goes on in that part of the world. There are ten, you know, thousands of nuclear weapons floating around there, all kinds of other weapons. Think of what happened after the fall of Gaddafi when there was chaos in Libya and those weapons proliferate through the through Africa, we're still dealing, we're still sending American troops to these parts of Africa to deal with jihadis that got their weapons from Gaddafi. Think of that now, put that on the Russian scale with groups like the Wagner mercenary group without a government to control them. All right, we don't want that to happen. No, no, no doubt that those are some great points. It also seemed like you were speaking directly to the White House and 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 perhaps are not confident that they have a that they're sitting with their counterparts in Ukraine and working on okay what do you want this to look like you know right and of course it's not just well i actually say in the piece the territorial stuff which is what everybody wants to talk about first actually frankly that's going to depend on what happens on the battlefront you know, the, the final frontiers are likely to be determined by where the armies are at the end. And that's something we don't know. Um, you know, Putin seems to think that the, his partial mobilization is going to give him a bigger army of trained troops in the spring. I saw today the Ukrainians are warning that they expect possibly 200,000 or more Russian troops to begin a major offensive in the Donbass. That's more troops than Russia's had in Ukraine so far. So we don't know what we're looking at in terms of territory. And so to say, well, this must be Ukrainian or that must be Russian. Winston Churchill had this great saying during World War II, you know, he'd say his favorite recipe for jugged hair begins with first catch your hair. <laughs> so, so, um, so I don't think it's time. I, I think there will come a time when it is time to think about what the boundaries will be. But actually, this larger thing of trying to think through what what peace should look like is something that runs on a different track and takes takes a bit longer to figure out. In some respects, it's uh, you know, the peace through strength. We're focusing on the strength side, but you also have to spend. Uh, a lot of time and attention on, on what, what the peace ought to look like and what the frame. This is not unlike Ronald Reagan's approach to affair. I mean, he's already talking with Gorbachev about an entirely new relationship 
between Russia and the U.S. Just like, what, four years after talking about the evil empire? Yeah. At the same yeah. time, he's being squeezing and and and, and engaging yeah. in the in the you know Cold War conflict. As there that's right. Well, if you look at the shield, great seal of the United States, you know, there's arrows and spears in one claw and an olive branch in the other. You do actually need both. Well said. Walter Russell Mead, thank you so much for being back on the show. Congrats on this amazing achievement, The Ark of a Covenant. We'll look forward to reading you in the Global View and the Wall Street Journal and having you back here, hopefully, in the not-too-distant future. Well, thank you. We hope you enjoyed this episode of Reaganism. New episodes premiere weekly every Monday on YouTube and all podcast streaming platforms. If you like this episode, be sure to let us know and share with a friend. 